1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? Mary, I know what I'm going to do tomorrow and the next day and next year and the year after that. I'm shaking the dust of this crummy little town off my feet and I'm going to see the world. I wish I was up there with them. This is me. You remember me? George Bailey. What is it you want, Mary? What do you want? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Uh-oh, uh-oh. I wish I had a million dollars. <laughs> trouble, Mr. Potter. I need help. At exactly 10.45 p.m. Earth time, that man will be thinking seriously of throwing away God's greatest gift. I don't want any plastics, and I don't want any ground floors, and I don't want to get married ever to anyone. You understand that? I want to do what I want to do. Welcome to this year's Christmas episode of Is It Yours? And who is better for me to bring along for a Christmas episode than my friends Ruth and Darren Sutherland, who just ooze with Christmas spirit? 
<laughs> Hello, How you guys Paul. doing? I wish I'd brought my jingle bells. I need a sound effect. <laughs> well, you know, I, I feel like you guys are the perfect choice for old movies, mm. and you guys are the perfect choice for sentimental movies. Mm. <laughs> so it's, you know, it was, it was when I thought this year I want to do It's a Wonderful Life, I said, who should I invite? And nobody else came to mind, to be quite honest. Aw, thank you. <laughs> How nice. I, I feel like Jimmy Stewart, the way Frank Capra said, he could imagine no one else other than him. So. <laughs> you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump right into that, because as I was just saying before we started recording, I have several pages of notes on this movie. And one of the first things that jumped out at me is uh, I watched this on uh, Amazon Prime. Uh, we my, did my, my watch for the sake of of, of the show, uh, my rewatch. And if you know on Amazon Prime, if you you can toggle down and it you could like look at the characters, the actors, uh, and they also have trivia. So I looked at some trivia on it, and two of the things that that I noticed were that two other actors that were in the running for the movie were Cary Grant. Mm-hmm. And Henry Fonda. Mm-hmm. Now, Cary Grant, if he had taken the part, I could see that being a very, very different movie. Yes. I really, I really just don't see it falling the same way. Uh, right. But Henry Fonda, I could see it being very similar, honestly. Yeah, I, I agree. It's fun to try to imagine, you know, paint the picture with either of them to see what it would be like differently. Yeah, yeah it's interesting. We're fans of all three of those, especially Jimmy Stewart and Cary Grant. But we had had that same conversation that, you know, what if it had been Cary Grant? And we both were like, well, as much as we like Cary Grant, it needed to be Jimmy Stewart for this movie instead of Cary Grant. But I I hear where you're coming from with Henry Fonda, that he could have maybe carried the range. Mm -hmm. Now, interestingly, another trivia fact I saw was that uh, Jimmy Stewart was a World War II veteran. Uh, This movie was made in 1946. Uh, so he had come home from the war not that long beforehand, and initially he did not want to take this part. Uh, mm-hmm. And the trivia I read was that actually Lionel, Lionel Barrymore convinced him to do it. Oh. That is interesting to hear. Yeah, I love hearing that. I had no idea about that. Um, <laughs> he's, so, he's so hateful in this movie. <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> it's nice to note that he was actually friends with Jimmy Stewart in real life. <laughs> what a nice story. I they had worked together before on another Frank Capra movie, so they must have had a good relationship then. I'm glad he recommended him because, yeah, he's perfect for it. They both the, are. The other interesting casting thing I saw was that, uh, uh, you know, this is Donna Reed's first uh, first movie, actually. Uh, and initially, Gene Arthur was considered for oh. for the role. And I like Gene Arthur. But I don't see her in the part. Donna Reed is excellent, and what a terrific film to debut in! Like I didn't know that it was her first, so that is yeah, interesting that is to amazing. hear. Yeah, that is amazing. She is so good in this. I mean, I mean, she really holds her own against Jimmy Stewart, who you know he's such a good, strong actor. Comedy, drama. I mean, he handles you know his depression and his fear and anxiety in this movie are just excellent. And but she holds her own because. She has a lot of variety to her part as well. Great. Yeah, she really does hold her own. And, and, and you know, as you talked about that, and, I mean, obviously we're jumping right into the conversation here. Uh, <laughs> and and I wanna, I'm going to back us up and talk about when we first saw it in a few minutes. But, uh, you know, I think Jimmy Stewart showed a lot of range in the movie, which is, 
I, I think you know you have to look at it a little closely to realize how much range he shows, mm-hmm. because it's such a feel-good movie at the end that you don't realize how much he plays down into the depths of the character. You know when he's getting depressed, the scene the scene when he's he's there with his children after the money is lost, mm. uh, and and he's you know upset and he starts yelling and then he tries to calm himself down and he apologizes but then he kind of loses his temper again and then mm-hmm. she has to come up and match him. You know, why are you torturing the children? You know, that whole scene. Uh, yeah. it's, it's wonderful acting. It really is. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right, Paul, because, I mean, that scene is completely believable. I mean, George Bailey, you can imagine he could lose it and be like that. Uh, and Jimmy Stewart plays it in such a way that you can accept that same guy that was so nice and playful and kind and goes out of his way for everyone can be like that too. You know, what a, what a range and it's so believable, but I'm glad you pointed out the fact that, you know, she has to stand up to him in that scene, both as an actress and as a character. The other thing she did as an actress that I I thought stood out is when she did the contrast of Mary, when George had never been born and now she's Mm -hmm. Mary the spinster. Oh Uh, yes. And she's so terrified of him and all. And I, I just, like I said, I, I just think it's a tremendous performance. It's, and I really like the way you pointed out that, and I, I know we're jumping all over the place, but that's okay. That's this movie is something I'm sure everybody has seen. And if they haven't, they need to go watch it right now and then pause this and come back and listen to the rest. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's one of those movies where, you know, the, it ends in such an uplifting way. And that, you know, last half hour of it is really, you know, that's what people remember the movie being about. But you forget until you're watching it that, you know, there's an hour and a half of a roller coaster before you get to that last half hour. So I think a lot of people, you know, the way the movie ends causes people to forget about the highs and the very low lows that are experienced by Jimmy Stewart throughout the movie. And I mean, the only two scenes or the two parts where he really loses it are, you know, that, that scene at home. And then, you know, afterwards when he goes out to the bar and all, but then there's, you know, when, when he has to confront uncle Billy mm-hmm. and he, when he, when he, you know, he's like, you know, one of us is going to jail and it's not going to be me. <laughs> right. uh, you know, he, he is, he is such a, just a, you know, like, a paradigm of goodness to this whole movie mm-hmm. that to see that part of it, it just adds some humanity to the role. Uh, you know, otherwise he, you know, it's just, he's this unattainable good <laughs> up until right. then, you know, everything that happens, it's like, well, okay, I'll deal with it. Okay. I'll deal with it. And finally he snaps. That's right. That's yeah. how I saw it too. It's like over his life, it was multiple crisis points that he was able to weather the storms and get through it. But that last one was such a disaster. You know, it broke him and he yeah. wasn't going to be able to get through that on his own. It, it's, it's interesting though, because you're, you're both right about that. And yet at the same time, it makes me think of that scene when he thinks his brother's coming back to take over the job and he's finally going to get to get his relief from it. And it turns out, you know, his brother comes back and he's married and now has a job at his wife's father's company. And you see he doesn't he doesn't lose it there. But, oh, my gosh, Jimmy Stewart plays that scene so well because you can see 
the crash in his face. I mean, he just he goes from the excitement of leaving to the depression of knowing he's not going anywhere. Well, the, and it's like that was one time he more. almost. Yeah, you see it in his face and he almost went there. Yeah, there's, so there's a subtlety to the way he plays it. I, I think you hit it right on the head. That yeah. that he he starts to crash, and then when he picks it back up, that's just, what am I doing? And he goes over and he gives her a kiss and whatever. You know, he, like like he has to bury that disappointment, right? Which he does repeatedly through this movie. <laughs> he sure does. <laughs> but you know, the the thing is. And, you know, I mean, now I'm getting to the to the morals and messages. I mean, we're, we're jumping all over. But, you know, when when I hear a lot of people talk about, uh, you know, people want to do this in our, their lives, people want to do that. Before we started to record, the three of us were talking about, you know, when, we, when we're lucky enough to get to retirement. Uh, and, you know, the, the expression I've always heard is life isn't about the destination. Life is about the journey. Darren says and, that frequently, so I just saw him resonate with that that sentiment. But I think that that is that is like one of the morals of this movie. Mm-hmm. You know, he's looking to do all these great things and everything, and doesn't realize that while he's waiting to do all these great things, he's doing great things. He's doing great things. Yeah, he's he's having a wonderful life, and he's without... affecting all these people around him. It's uh, Ruth. Uh, it is funny. I'm glad you pointed out, Ruth. You saw me smile there. But uh, but it's also fun because, you know, Ruth and I like to travel. That's one of the things we like. So she gets heartbroken every time she watches this movie, every time Jimmy Stewart doesn't get I to know. take his trip. He didn't get to use his big giant suitcase. <laughs> so was, now I'm, I'm going to back us up totally here to, to the movie itself. It was not a hit when it came out. And that was, a, I think, a. a very big disappointment for Capra and probably mm-hmm. for the studio. Uh, and it was not a well-known movie until it fell into the public domain. And I know I was not really familiar with it. I saw it at some point on VHS in the early to mid-1980s for the first mm-hmm. time. That was the very first time I ever saw it. And I specifically remember sitting and popping in the videotape and watching it. Uh, and at that point, it was in the public domain. So, you know, there were various quality copies or copies <laughs> of various qualities is probably a better way to say it. Uh, but the one I had was decent enough, and I watched it, and I loved it immediately. This this movie pulled me in right away. Uh, and I've seen it probably a hundred times since then. Uh, I just, I love this movie. It's, it's absolutely just, you know, I'm, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to bury the lead on my, my review. You, you already know where I'm going with that. Uh, yeah, but you know, how, how did you guys see this for the first time? Oh, it would have been just as a kid and growing up that it was on television. It was, you know, we had very few channels back then and you just, turn the channel around and find the movie you know, around Thanksgiving and Christmas. So just really as part of that holiday season for my memories. Yeah, I think I think that would be the same for me. It's that whole, you know, public domain uh, issue that I think, you know, kicked in in the mid 70s. So I would have seen it somewhere in the late 70s or early 80s on on TV, because I remember just like you, Paul, mentioning the, you know, the cheap VHS copies that you could buy. And, and you would look at, you know, a store would have a half a dozen different versions of it, and you'd look at it, and they would all be different lengths because they just, you know, whatever print, whatever company got hold of, they'd throw it on a VHS. I can remember intentionally buying the movie because I had seen it on TV, 
but not more than once or twice, but buying that VHS copy. And I remember scouring, trying to find the one that was the longest so I could get the most complete version. Hmm. That's an interesting point. I remember uh, it's like, especially the, uh, you know, that they, they would have the prints where so many stations would get it and they would chop it up, you know, for whatever amount of commercials they could sell. So that's the reason it ended up with so many varying links. I know a lot of uh, copies would cut off the whole opening sequence, you know, where they're showing the stars and you hear the, you know, Joseph and, and Clarence talking. A lot of uh, copies would have that whole sequence cut out. So I remember looking for one that had that. Okay, I had a point that I was going to make, but before I get to that, I'm going to say it's funny because I had thought this story, you know, once it became as popular as it did, in its own way rivals A Christmas Carol as mm. probably the most popular mm. Christmas tale to tell in different forms and to just, mm. you know, it's it's become so iconic. And as as I'm thinking this, I, I ran my mouse over uh, on the Wikipedia page where it says, based on The Greatest Gift by Philip Van Doren Stern. And the description of that is that it's a 1943 short story written by Philip Van Dornstern, loosely based on the Charles Dickens novel, A Christmas Carol. (laughs) (laughs) So there you go. You know, I I was putting these two side by side, but I guess A Christmas Carol wins out if this is (laughs) if this was inspired by that. Well, anybody should be happy to take second place to Dickens. Uh, yeah, that that is fine. Yeah, you're right there. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go to the controversy now, because this was a debate I had in the 1980s, and it was one I had internally yesterday when I went to rewatch the movie. Uh, Amazon Prime has this available in black and white, and mm-hmm. colorized. Mm-hmm. Now, back in the 1980s, I had somebody who was a true film fanatic get very angry mm-hmm. at me. <laughs> because I watched a, yellow, a colorized version of It's a Wonderful Life, and I argued that if it's not a film noir or something that is clearly influenced by the fact that it's black and white where the director would have tried to put moodiness into it or whatever, that uh-huh. colorizing the movie, if it's done well and it's not obvious, is fine. It didn't mm-hmm. bother me. Mm-hmm. In fact, with younger people like my children, they're probably much more likely to sit down and watch it in a colorized version than they are a black and white version. Now, when Mm -hmm. I watched it yesterday on Amazon, the colorization in the version that they have to me looked tremendous. You couldn't, I couldn't tell that it was, you know, if I didn't already know, I wouldn't have been able to tell that it was colorized. And again, I don't think this was a film noir except for maybe the scenes again, like when he's confronting Mary, when she's the spinster, uh, and it's a little dark at that moment. Other than that, I don't know that there's any scene where there's particularly moody lighting in this. So I see this as a fine movie to colorize. And I, again, I think with a lot of film purists, I'm probably speaking blasphemy. It's, it's interesting that you say that. I'm really glad to have this conversation because, I mean, I, I consider myself a film buff, especially it, in my formative years. I really wanted to see you know, as many classics, you know, quote unquote, as I could. And I studied film in uh, in college, you know, as, as a uh, not not as my major, but as a supplemental. I just love film. And you said so many things that I agree with, because first off. If if 
something being in black and white is going to prevent the current generation from seeing it, then having a colorized version to me is fine because it's important for the you know a new generation to see this film and if it being in color will help them see this film then great and you know what there's going to be a certain percentage of those uh those people that see the film colorized that are going to latch onto the film and love the film and they're going to seek out the original black and white version so to me it just helps the movie stay alive and that's what's important is it needs to live and the other thing I agree with you, too, about is why was the movie originally in black and white? There's a difference between whether or not a movie was in black and white because of budget constraints or whether or not a movie was in black and white because it was the director's choice. So that's always important to me, too. You look at a movie like Psycho and Alfred Hitchcock had no budget constraints. He chose to make that movie in black and white. But. There are lots of movies like this that are made in black and white because of budget constraints. And what's interesting to me is you you can pull Frank Capra and get him on either side of this issue because when this movie was first colorized, he was in support of that. He wanted the movie colorized. He had seen samples of some colorization, and he even wanted to invest in it. But then things sort of fell apart, and, and he ended up not being, and because of the way they colorized it, he ended up coming out against that colorization. But the version that Amazon's showing is the 2007 colorization, which is beautiful, just like you said. And we chose to watch the colorized version this year. We we go back and forth watching both. And it, you're yeah. right. It's it's a beautiful colorization job. Yeah, it, it really – that's it's. I would say it's as good a colorization job as I've seen on any movie. And I don't generally seek out colorized versions. I don't, I don't want to make it sound like I'm a big advocate of colorizing. Right. On the other hand, I, I don't have a problem with it. Uh, yep. But I would say this is as good a job as I've ever seen on it. And back in the eighties, when I still wasn't really totally opposed to it, uh, the version then had too much of a pastel look to it. Yeah. Uh, almost like somebody, you know, so somebody took it and, and by hand took like crepas or something and, 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 colored in the you know the the individual frames as opposed to a computerized version yeah uh, so that looked less real mm -hmm. when you looked at it this looks real to me you're so right it's you know just like you said that that early colorization was done using analog techniques and it just it looks you know the colors look washed out they don't always stay within the lines it sort of bleeds it's you get all the analog effect and the new version that's colorized is digital, and it, it just, you know, just like a CGI movie, you know, it can do amazing things. And I'm like you. I don't seek out colorized movies most of the time because I grew up watching black and white films and love them. So uh, I don't seek it out either, but this is a really nice one if you're going to watch one. The colors look great and just the clarity. I kept marveling on how crystal clear it was. You know, I still have those childhood memories of kind of the snowy television that yeah, well, especially the cheap clear. versions of this that we're making the, right. the rounds that's right yeah, the vhs prints oh gosh <laughs> all right I, i'm just you know again my notes kind of jump all over the place but I, the next section of my notes have several characters that i wanted to discuss and comment on mm. uh the first one is mr gower oh uh <laughs> i put three exclamation points after his name <laughs> what the hell was he doing putting poison in that medicine? 
<laughs> Seems like a I mean, was it intentional? Was it? What did? I mean, did he just grab the wrong thing and put it in, or was yeah. he trying? Was he so grief stricken that he was trying to kill somebody? I think he wasn't aware of what bottle he had picked up when he was getting his ingredients to make up the medicine, since he had had that bad news about his son dying. So yeah. I think he just wasn't in his right mind. I think because then he went to jail to for it in the other version. So yeah, that says to me that somebody said it was intentional. It's it's one of those things where you know I, I take it as it it wasn't supposed to be intentional, but boy, you look at that bottle and the you know the big poison sign symbol is is so large on that bottle. It's like how did he miss it? But I know he was grief stricken, and yeah, it's like in the like you said in the alternate version of history, you know, he went to jail whether it was you know for gross negligence or whether it was for you know intent. I don't know, but my goodness that. That actor, though, oh, it's so is so good. Powerful. I mean, yeah, just look at, again, like Jimmy Stewart, look at the range you see of him where he's, you know, he's happy and go lucky. And then he's so, you know, down at that point in time. And then later when he's homeless in the alternate history and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, he just he does a really great job playing that range. Yeah, he was played by H.B. Warner. And let me just run my thing over him. Uh Played Jesus Christ in King of Kings, which I guess is not the 1961 Jeffrey Hunter version. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's that's interesting. And it says, appeared in numerous films directed by Frank Capra. Uh, not surprising. Capra had a, he had a cast that he liked. And it's interesting to see them turn up in some of his other movies, yeah. Now, I, I always look at it, though, and, and, and I think, boy, he, I mean, he really gave George a beating. And if, if you know, if I were George's father, I'd be running over to the drugstore and, 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 and you'd have to hold me back because, you know, he, he made his ear bleed. He made him lose some hearing. Well, actually, no, the lost, lost hearing was from when he fell into the ice. So he didn't make him lose. His oh, hearing. that's right. But his ear his was brother. bleeding after he smacked him those few times. Well, and this is an interesting bit of trivia, Paul. I don't know. You may know it as well. But interestingly, the actor accidentally slapped the the young boy actress in the ear in such a way that it made his ear bleed for real. It's like he hit him so hard that it really did bleed. And the boy ended up in tears uh, and he had to, you know, apologize and hold the poor boy. It's just like, yes, sometimes it's like, you know, something just falls the wrong way. So it, yeah, it's, it's like you watch that scene and it's like, it, it's harrowing to watch and then you just have to think that, wow. And plus it really happened. Um, that's a bit scary, too, the way an accident like that can happen. Yeah. Uh, and just a trivia on the kid is uh, apparently he stayed active in movies, uh, played a few, you know, few other roles over the years. Uh, but then he was into uh, or he was involved in like production. And mm -hmm. I saw that he worked on something as recently as uh, Passenger 57 with Wesley Snipes. Nice. He, I like he knowing acted that. in that. But he right. uh, but he, you know, he had some sort of part in the production of it. That's really neat to hear. I like trivia like that. Another piece of trivia on, on this, and a lot of this is, uh, you know, a lot of this is gleaned from Amazon Prime, by the way, uh, just to give credit where it's due. They uh, mention uh, in the, in the, uh, what you call it, the telegram that George reads that, you know, his son died of influenza and they were speculating now that that was probably the Spanish flu 
that was such a, a a big thing. That, you know, that was another pandemic. It was the last pandemic before uh, COVID. That's uh, right. Nineteen eighteen. Because this is uh, that scene with George is in nineteen nineteen. Oh wow, that's really interesting. That's a you know I would love to take credit for figuring that out on my own, but mm-hmm. I'm not quite that good. No, I'd, I'd never thought to look beyond that. Just seeing it in the telegram, that's interesting to hear. So uh, the next character, I just I don't know, uh, Sam Wainwright, just kind of gets on my nerves <laughs> with his hee haw. Oh. <laughs> it's like grow up already, Sam. That's the one thing Ruth complains about when we watch the movies. She always goes, what's up with Hee Haw? (laughs) I'm fine with George going over and wishing he had a million dollars every time he goes by the uh, wishing thing. But the Hee Haw thing, it's like enough already. Sam, we heard you. Although Sam is very generous at the end. He offers, uh, what was it, $25,000, up to $25,000. And I I did some math on that. Uh, I went into... The uh, what you call it, the inflation uh, mm-hmm. speculator or whatever it's called. Right. He lost eight thousand dollars, which by today's money would be approximately one hundred and twenty-three thousand. Oh my wow. goodness! And Sam offered him twenty-five thousand, which would be the equivalent today of three hundred and eighty-six thousand. Wow, that's amazing to put it in that perspective. Yeah, I'm really glad so, you looked that up too. So when you, uh, he, but when you think about it in that perspective, George, this is how good a person George is. Yeah. Uncle Billy screwed up. Uncle Billy lost this money, and he knows Uncle Billy lost the money. Mm-hmm. He's willing to do whatever. He's willing to take a loan out from Mr. Potter if he was willing to give it to him at whatever interest rate he would require. Right. On what is the equivalent of you know over one hundred and twenty thousand dollars today? My goodness, just to, to uh, take uh, care of yeah. that. That's huge. It's, Sam Wainwright is an amazing character. I mean, just to think, you know, there he <laughs> he was going to marry Mary at one point in time. He never held a grudge. <laughs> so, yeah, but you know, let, let's be let's, let's put things in perspective. When he called Mary, he had some woman there with him at the same time. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so it's, not, it's not like he was sitting there being celibate waiting for Mary. <laughs> Good observation. Yeah. Okay, then the next character that I took a note on was Violet Bick. Oh. Hmm. And, and I'm just going to come right out and ask, in later life, is Violet Bick a prostitute? She's, she's certainly... I think uh, so, the Potterville version. Yeah. yeah, which is being arrested by the police yeah. and you know, I th- I fighting thought like that. A, was, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, thought that was implied, but not clear. I mean, uh, with George, she's like a flirt, but you know, then without George, yeah, I'm thinking <laughs> that's the, I, I, I'm trying to figure out what they're arresting her for. Yeah, it has to be. I mean, there's there's so much, you know, when they go through Pottersville at that point in time, there's so much to indicate. I think that that's the intent of it. Yeah. And I've you go on. No. I've enjoyed her character. I do think she liked uh, George and was very interested in him, but wasn't compatible because George was spontaneous and imaginative and like he would want to run off and do something uh, too crazy for her. And she wanted to stay, you know, all um, 
you know, girly, but Mary was able to take on the challenge. So she liked George coming up with wild ideas, you know, like I'll give you the moon and uh, she would go along and also be as an imaginative herself. So decorating the house to look like the hotel for their honeymoons when they couldn't go on their trip and stuff. So I really liked, you know, seeing the different potential love interest and knowing that the, the best match worked out in the end. I'm glad you said that. That's what I was wanting Ruth to say, because she always says that about Mary and Violet when we watch it. So I was wanting to make sure she said that because she really does see that, you know, it's Violet is as much as she might like George. She's not comfortable with George and his imagination. But Mary is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mary doesn't have George's wanderlust, mm -hmm. but she does have his love of life, his love of just like you said, spontane spontaneity. Uh, you know, he, he he gives his whole I'll lasso the, the moon thing and she's like, I'll take it. You yes. know? <laughs> you know, she she's a she's a homebody whereas he he wants to wander, but I think they have the same values. Mm. Right. Same sense, sense of fun. Sense of fun and whimsy. Whereas Violet wants to be fancy and go to like fancy restaurants and you know, dress in, in, you know, the, uh, you know, in gowns and whatever. Yeah, the right. latest fact. Right. So now the, I guess one of the very few weaknesses I can give you in this movie is when, when the characters are shown as being 17, 18, 19, 20 years old, mm -hmm. they all look like they're 35 years old. <laughs> <laughs> yes. They really didn't do much of a job of, of making them look younger. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, you're right. You have to pay attention to because they'll try to reference a year here or there in the scenes to give you an idea. So you have to really pay attention to that because otherwise, yeah, you're thinking, OK, it's Jimmy Stewart's 35. <laughs> oh, no, here he's supposed to be 18. OK, <laughs> well, she's supposed to be 17. Right or eighteen, I think she's supposed to be the same age as as Tommy. Tommy. Uh, Tommy yeah, so Bailey, he's. I guess right? George is like four years older. Yeah, so I think she's supposed to be eighteen. He's supposed to be twenty-two, because he's hung mm -hmm. out. He he was gonna go away to college, but he waited for his brother to graduate high school so he could take over the business so that he could go. Or no, he worked with his father and hung out. Yeah. Then he then he let his brother go and he waited for him to get back. So at that point, George is probably like 26, mm -hmm. uh, and he's still still there in in uh, Bedford Falls. But Never uh, got away. You know, there's the scene that resonates a little bit with me is when he talks to his dad before he goes to the uh, the dance, and he gives him the you know what, Dad, you're a great guy, or I think you're a great guy. Oh. And knowing that that's the last thing he said to his father before his father had the stroke, that uh, resonated with me. That's nice. I had never really thought about that timeline, but you're right. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate you pointing that out. It was a very heartfelt yeah. exchange where you know they did share their love and admiration of each other. And it's, that, has, yeah, that has like a very personal context to me because as my mom and dad got older, and I could intellectually accept the fact that, you know, I wasn't going to have them forever, even though emotionally I kind of felt I would. Uh, I made a point of every conversation I had with either of them ended with me saying, I love you, before mm, I hung up nice. the phone, before I walked out of the house. 
That's wonderful. Uh, and and seeing George do that just brought that all flooding back to me. Oh wow! So it, a, like I said, it really resonated with me. I don't know, I don't I don't know that Capra intended it to be that powerful, but it was. No, that's nice that you. I'm sure you. You know the way the movie's structured. I'm sure that he had that intent there, and boy, you picked up on it really well. So the next, I guess, kind of trivia thing, and I think it's a trivia thing that's not going <laughs> to most people know. Uh, when they open up the pool thing, the guy who does it is Alfalfa from the Little Alfalfa. Rascals. I think you know. I, I don't think that's a big big secret, but I think it's just kind of a cool fact. It's for anyone who grew up watching the Little Rascals. It's just he's so immediately recognizable. It's like oh. You don't even have to, you know, you don't need IMDb for that. It's right. just like, there's alfalfa as an adult. Fun to spot. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's exactly it. It's just, a, a, you know, but I, I think of it every single time. Yes. Every well, time I watch too. this movie, I think of it. <laughs> that's um, the, the whole scene there, and, you know, we've already kind of hit on it a little bit, the, the, the discussion between George and Mary. Uh, you know, when they go to the house and it feels like that whole scene is structured to show what the rest of their lives are going to be. You know, a lot of the conversation is foreshadowing it. Uh, Mm. I just think it's really well written in that regard. I think that whole, that whole scene just plays so well. Wow. See, Paul, you're really insightful. That's absolutely a good point because in that sequence you get them being, nervous with each other you get them being playful with each other you get them being you know suddenly something happens that completely impacts them both um the the whole sequence with the house and what one of them thinks about the house and what the other one thinks about the house wow that was really insightful you're absolutely right it's like a little tiny you know capsule uh, yeah capsule thank you ruth she, she saw me <laughs> drawing one. I couldn't think of the word. Uh, it's, it's, it's part of the good part of being married is you do that for each other. <laughs> Believe me, we, we do that here all the time. Uh, I, you know, at this point, I feel like I, I kind of got my real feel for Mr. Potter. <laughs> when, when, when he can't even be respectful at Mr. Bailey's death. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he says yeah, he was a fine man, a man of high ideals, so-called. <laughs> it's like he can't, you can't even show respect right now for, for, for ten minutes. He makes it so easy not to like his character. Oh yeah, he, I tell you, Lionel Barrymore makes the most of that part. I mean, he just uh, absolutely. Even that scene at the end where he he says to George Bailey something to the effect that you know. You know, have a happy new year in jail. <laughs> and meanwhile, he knows 100% that Billy had, Uncle Billy lost the money. He's the one who got it. He's right. the one who got and it. And yet he's willing to send George to jail over it. Yeah. He is absolutely despicable. Uh, that's the word for it, despicable. And and the thing is, is it also gives insight into his, you know, his bodyguard or his assistant or his valet, whatever the 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 character is because he knows as well and he doesn't ever say a word yeah he's complicit (laughs) yeah absolutely he's so complicit in his silence yep okay now one of the things now that upset me and this is the first time it upset me was watching it yesterday but i'm particularly sensitive as i get older to people who play old characters in movies and are younger than me 
And Uncle, <laughs> Uncle Billy said, I can get another job. I'm only 56. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so to think I'm older than Uncle Billy bothers me. <laughs> and I'm exactly the same age. I am 56. Changing so you... perspective over time. I yes. can appreciate that. <laughs> My definition of old keeps extending, you know? Yes, now old is like 100. <laughs> there you go. That's it. Absolutely. Yeah, when, when you start getting into somebody passed away, they were like 78. Yes, he was a young man. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> I do periodically use uh, old building and loan pal. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I kind of like that, that whole scene. Uh, and then when he falls down, I'm all right. I just, it just brings a smile to my face every time. They said on, on you know, very, very minor trivia, but on Amazon it said uh, somebody uh, off, scene, off screen uh, dropped a, uh, like a plate full of, full of uh, utensils and stuff. That's how they made the sound of the garbage cans. It's, uh, that's such a wonderful little piece of trivia. I'd, I'd heard that before, yeah, that the actor playing Uncle Billy, you know, ad-libbed that line, you know, so that they were able to save the scene. And it's, you know, that's... That's terrific that, you know, Frank Capra was like, oh, that's the version we'll keep. My next note was that uh, the chemistry between Donna Reed and James Stewart really comes out in the scene when he goes to the house, when, when uh, you know, when, when his mom sends him over there and he goes to see her. Uh, the whole thing with the phone call with Sam Wainwright and then just the breakdown when they finally kiss each other. Uh, it's It's such a atypical love scene mm. it's just you know I, I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like it in any other movie and yet it comes off so well I, I you know so believable I think there's just such a chemistry between the two of them that I, I, I just you know it's great oh I'm so glad you said that Paul I've heard other people that that's like their least favorite scene or the scene they hate in the movie because they just they think um, Jimmy Stewart, George Bailey is just being a horrible person through that whole scene. And I've watched that scene and I just like like you, they're so believable. You can tell both of them want something other than what seems to be going on on the surface. But neither one of them knows how to get past what seems to be going on on the surface. And you just see it building up and creating this, you know, the whole the sequence tension. of events, yeah. the tension. Yeah, uh, I love that scene. See, I think all the tension. I think all the tension is created by George, because George <laughs> again has this wanderlust. He wants to leave. Mary knows she loves George. She already knows it. She's known it since she was ten years old. Uh, <laughs> and she's, you know, he's finally come over. She's got the uh, Buffalo Gals music ready to play. She's got the picture of George Lasso's the moon for. It. She's expecting him to come and woo her. Yes. And yes. he comes and he's indifferent and he's confused and he's fighting. He, you know, he loves her too, but he just doesn't know it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he's fighting that as it's coming out to the surface and it just keeps bubbling up and bubbling up until it finally erupts. 
And I just, I think, it, again, it's just a, a very well-constructed scene, and it's masterfully acted. Mm-hmm. So I think the people who've criticized it, they need to look at it a little bit more closely again. Oh, gosh, you're absolutely right. It, I love that scene. When she breaks the record, it breaks my heart because you know how she feels when she breaks that record. Oh, gosh. Yeah, that's that, that record is her heart, yes. which is breaking at that moment. Yep. So, you know, it's just, it's terrific. Mm-hmm. So then we get to, you know, George and Mary get married, and then we have the run at the bank, which is just totally, I you know, it, it gives you an, an image of what it was, must have been like when the stock mm-hmm. market crashed. Mm-hmm. Yes, all the panic. And George gives his speech to everybody at the building and loan, and the fact that they buy into it mm. is amazing because you think about it, you're terrified. The stock market mm. crashed. Money is just, you know, the banks are failing uh, and your life savings is there. Mm-hmm. And he's saying to you, leave your life savings with me. I'll take care of it. You have to trust me. Mm-hmm. Just tell me what you need right now to survive. Mm-hmm. And then you get Tom, who's, I need $242, uh, you know, but, but everybody else is, you know, pretty much willing to do what they need to, to help George yes. and get him through the, through the, uh, you know, through the, through the emergency, including Grandma Walton. Grandma Walton. That's right. She only needed $17 and 50 cents. Always remember that. Yeah, I, and, I and, and that gets her a kiss. Yeah. yeah. I grew up watching the Waltons. It's just wonderful to to see her. You know, she's just like Alfalfa. You know, she looks exactly the same, decades apart, and she's so good in that movie. Very but, recognizable. But you're right too. You know, it's uh, George gives such an impassioned speech, but you know, Mary being completely fully supportive, and she's the one that it's like, here's money. This is she our, handed over their wedding, their money. wedding money. That's right. Yeah. It's like this is what you need to do. So she believes in him. You know, that's just it's a real testament yeah. to how much she trusts him. I love that. And people trust him and have faith in him. And I have to think his father had set the precedent too. So people knew his father from the past, mm-hmm. and you know they were willing to in that moment go ahead and be supportive. And I do love uh, though. Like you, Paul, you know, that $242 that that one guy has to have every penny of his. I do like at the end when people are bringing in money to help George out. He's one of the first ones that comes in and gives money. So it's like he learned his lesson. Yeah, you got to you got to like if you want to read between the lines, you think that, you know, maybe he's felt guilty about it for the last few (laughs) years, knowing that George was right, that he was going to get them through this. Right. So the, yeah, that's that's a good point. Uh, oh, I, I do have a note uh, when when I was going through the Amazon uh, thing with the different actors, they actually had a credit for Jimmy the Crow, uh, the crow that's in, <laughs> oh. in the uh, in the building and loan, who, who's who's <laughs> been in at least crow. five movies. Oh wow! <laughs> Which I think are probably all all Frank Capra movies in my Frank Capra movies. Oh wow! Oh, that's Must great. Must have been a pet. <laughs> Another another actor who who you have to recognize if you love old movies and old TV shows uh, is Charles Lane, uh, 
who is the one <laughs> I always got a kick out of his speech. You know, one of these days, this bright boy will be asking George Bailey for a job. That guy, <laughs> oh, or yes. this bright young man, he says actually. Yes. And and <laughs> on what world is he a young man? <laughs> <laughs> he looks like he's at least forty, forty-five when he's saying that. And he's one of those other like Ellen Corby from uh, Grandma Walton. You know, he sort of looks the same age for decades as well. You can spot him in everything. And I think he's one of those frequent people that Frank Capra uses because rewatching this movie made us want to rewatch Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. So we rewatched that as well. I think he has a a cameo in that one as well. So it's just, yeah, he's wonderful to see. I want to see how old he was at the time they made this uh, Charles Lane was born in 1905, so he would have been 41 in 1945. 41. And I, I get a, I get a big kick. One of one of my friends has always pointed out to me. They did like one of those TV Land uh, tributes, and he was probably close to 100 years old. He lived to be 102. Uh, he was probably 100 years old, and they brought him out. And uh, he got to the microphone. He says, I'm available. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. I love it. <laughs> so, yeah, he, but he, yeah, he was in so many different things that, like I said, if, if you see him, uh, you know, basically like every sitcom from the 1950s and 60s, he was probably in an episode at some point or another uh, and a lot of movies as well. Uh, I have notes on the dollar amounts, which we talked about. I have notes about George losing his temper, which mm-hmm. we also talked about. Uh, but I just want to hit on that again, because I just I just think it's such a marvelous performance mm-hmm. when he tries to apologize and then loses his temper again. <laughs> yes. That, 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 I can relate that to that. That up and down. <laughs> I mean, but it's, it's, it's so real. <laughs> Yes. You know, he's trying so hard to reel it in and get it under control and apologize. And yet he's so frustrated and afraid uh, that that he can't, you know, he can't control his emotion. I just think it's it's so wonderful. Yeah. And then I have uh, another note about Potter being such a jerk. (laughs) That is true. Every scene throughout the movie. I love that scene when uh, at one point in time, you know, when he's offering uh, Jimmy Stewart a, a job and Jimmy Stewart says, you know, just can I have tonight to think about it and talk with my wife? And Potter says yes and reaches out and he and he shakes his hand and George pulls his hand back and is just like he looks at it like, oh, my gosh, you know, it's so contaminated. Yeah. <laughs> it's well, it's all perfect. sweaty and slimy. <laughs> Yeah, that that that's another just you know he he it, it's you know George is almost again he's like a paradigm of almost a perfect person his reactions to everybody and and I I don't want to get sacrilegious here but that's almost like the temptation of Christ mm-hmm. I, I don't know if I'm overstating that and I probably am but you know he's he is such a good person mm-hmm. and miss. Mr. Potter comes out and tempts him with, I'm going to just make your life oh, yeah. easy for you. All you got to do is sell out these people who who don't do it for themselves. You do it all for them. Why should you have to struggle when you're the only one who's willing to do all of this? Yeah. No, I, I, and I don't and think he thinks about it. And it you know, it's tempting. Yeah. 
Uh, and but, he almost does. I mean, I, I don't think you overstated that at all, Paul. I, you know, for for a movie that is as you know religious as this movie is, I'm sure that temptation is part of you know again part of the intent in the film. It's just you know it, it's really just you know the whole per- he, he is such a, a three dimensional character mm. while still being somebody who you know you've we've never met anybody that good right <laughs> you know? right so he's not realistic in that respect and yet he feels so real yeah yeah he does i mean the thing is is he played jimmy stewart plays it so perfectly because you see the conflict in his expression so often he does what he feels he must do it isn't though always what he wants to do so it's not like he is happily making all these sacrifices. You see that he understands he's making sacrifices. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So he you know, he ends up in the bar where he meets Mr. Welsh. Now, the actor <laughs> that played Mr. Welsh reminds me of Victor McLaughlin. Mm. Mm-hmm. I can see that. And when I, I, when I looked him up, uh, interestingly, one of his credits, and I'm not sure exactly what role he played in it, but he was in Superman and the Mole Man. Oh, neat. <laughs> Interesting connection. Wow. Yeah. It just yeah. brings us back into the, the geek community. That's, right. That's absolutely right. <laughs> love, the, love that Superman series. <laughs> and then uh, Martini, the owner of the bar, who we saw yes. earlier when he got his house. I liked when Mr. Welsh hit george and they had him removed he got so upset and he says you hit my best friend <laughs> this is a guy who's just a minor character yeah but george is so important to him that he's his best friend mm-hmm. i like that he helped his family move and yeah. only friends do that yeah, i know I say, and not yeah. only did he help him move but then when he moved you know they had the whole scene where you know we brought yeah. you bread so that you may have yeah. this and wine so you may have this it wasn't just okay here's the money goodbye Right. right, a nice yeah. ceremony. I love that scene. Yeah, that's when he's creating, you know, his community as opposed to what's there later. Yeah, Bailey Park. Yeah, yeah. Instead of Potter's Field. Still at Potter's Field, yeah. And then uh, we have Sheldon Leonard as Nick, and Sheldon Leonard's another guy where if you've seen old movies and old TV shows and, you haven't, and you're not familiar with Sheldon Leonard, I'm yeah. surprised. Yeah. Uh, Familiar face. He... he he does a really good job, though, I thought, in this, of the contrast. Mm-hmm. The uh, the Nick who experienced George Bailey in his life and the Nick who didn't. Right. You know, the, the, the one who did is just a nice guy. He works with Martini. He's, he's the bartender. He's happy and everything's fine. The other one is, you know, so that's another thing. Where do you get off calling me Nick? You know, that, that guy. <laughs> you two pixies, get out of here. Yeah. It's really interesting that you mentioned that, Paul, because you're right. You know, in the in the world with George Bailey, he's much happier. But in the world without George Bailey, he's more successful because he owns the bar and it's a busy bar, but he's not happy. Yeah. Yeah. He's. Yeah, he's definitely not. Um, <laughs> interesting trivia for him. He didn't really want to be in the movie, but he apparently agreed to do so because he wanted the money to buy baseball tickets. 
Oh, wow. <laughs> that's, that's what they, they put down for him. Um, oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> now we have uh, the guy whose tree George hits into. Oh, yeah. Right? He right. reminded me of William Frawley, oh. Fred Mertz from I Love Lucy. Interesting. That's, I, you know, I can't even remember him right now, but I remember the character and remember the scene, but I can't visualize him. Well, he, he comes up with one of the best lines, I thought. You know, George is stumbling by. Uh, this is the George who never, you know, after uh, Clarence takes him out of existence. And he's saying, oh, I, you know, I hit my car into that tree, put a big gash into it. And meanwhile, you know, it obviously never happened in this reality. So you, you must mean two other trees. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that. <laughs> oh, gosh. So then uh, I'm trying to look at what, you know, I hate when I make notes and I don't know exactly, uh, <laughs> exactly what I meant, <laughs> but, oh, okay. Now I do know, uh, another piece of trivia when George is on the bridge, ready to take his own life and there's the snow coming down, mm. apparently all the snow is fake. Mm -hmm. And when they mm. filmed that, it was 90 degrees out. Oh, wow. Wow. Oh, and Jimmy day. Stewart was sweating like like a pig. Yes. <laughs> that helped him look uh, so distraught. Yeah, I would think so. It, it's. I'm glad you mentioned the snow, though, because I'm sure you're probably planning to mention that, because that's the one Oscar it won was for the snow. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I actually didn't know that. Oh, but that's, that's a good point. I'm glad you mentioned that. It's the... Um, the head of special effects for RKO for this film, up until this film, snow was always what? Untoasted un frosted, frosted, frosted flakes. flakes, untoasted cornflakes. Cornflakes. Uh, right. And then, which of course crunched so loudly that they always had to redub dialogue. So for this film, because there was going to be so much snow in it, the head of special effects at RKO created an entirely new way of making artificial snow. And the Oscars actually created a special category to give him an award for that. And that's the way they did snow for decades and decades. Is that with like soap that. chips or something? Yeah, exactly. Something like sugar, that. Sugar. Like yeah. It sounded like an, an odd recipe that it worked. But yeah, because it, it looks more natural on screen and it doesn't make any noise. So they don't have to redub dialogue. So, yeah. That's cool. Good, good trivia point. Thanks for that. Um, Clarence. <laughs> what do you think of Clarence Oddbody? Oh, so funny. I really enjoyed him. He's just charming <laughs> through and through. <laughs> and he tells the truth. People just don't believe him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's very true. It, even uh, the comments about this, this is the dressing gown I, I was buried in. <laughs> <laughs> or, or died in whichever one it was. It's I, just I, like he's just very matter of fact. I do understand George's uh, frustration. So, yeah, you you look like kind of the angel I would guess. You know. That kind of thing. <laughs> oh gosh, that's so hilarious. But the two of them play off each other really well, and, and his whole you know his whole demeanor is he's such a such a child at heart, which is just wonderful. Uh, I I think that's why people sometimes forget the fact that, you know, the that part of the movie is really only like the last 20 or 25 percent, because 
the two of them are so good together and Clarence is so uh, good. Uh, and then plus that whole sort of idea of, you know, if you'd never been born, that's all so important and played so well. And I think people, you know, in retrospect, always remember that being a much bigger part of the movie than it is. And he's so good. It's no wonder. But I think the whole, if you had never been born thing, uh, you know, I have a note on that just saying it's such a simple premise, mm-hmm. but I think it's it seems so simple now in retrospect because it's it's become part of our culture. Right. But at the time they made this, that was like such, you know, a very clever idea, I think. And, and it's 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 just, you know, so, you know, just just so well done to show you know how one life touches another you know it's basically the butterfly effect mm-hmm. uh you know and and i i just think it's it's great and how it restores george's faith uh you know it, it it's just you know it, it just <laughs> i'm lacking words here uh it, it it's just such a, a brilliant setup really is what it is as far as i'm concerned and then just to you know to mirror his life and show this is what it would have been like without you but this is what these people would be like without you. All these people who you, you know, who you helped, you know, without even realizing it. I'm really glad you mentioned that, Paul, because uh, we actually thought it was very coincidental because this week it just so happened on NPR uh, Pop Culture Happy Hour had a like 20 minute segment on, you know, four people discussing It's a Wonderful Life. And we thought, oh, wow, how neat, you know, we can hear what these people think about it. And, of course, you know, they always try to get four people that have different points of view. So there was one person on the of the four that was the guest who absolutely, you know, hates everything about this movie. And one of the things that he complained about, I mean, he complained about so many things that the others would, you know, correct him on. But he complained about the that plot point and it being so overdone. And I'm just like. Don't you know when they did it? <laughs> this was it wasn't overdone in 1946. Right. It's, it's overdone because everyone else has copied it. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, gosh. So I didn't think we were going to be able to do it, but we have gone through all of my notes that I took down while I watched the movie. Uh, so now I'm going to throw to you guys. Do you have anything to add to what we have said so far? We do have. I mean, we love this movie, and you've heard about how long ago it was. We've seen it, and we've watched it many times. We don't watch it every year, but we watch it most Christmases. Uh, We just love everything about this film, and I've been a fan of Jimmy Stewart from the very beginning. But it's interesting because over time, we've ended up with lots of little connections to this movie without necessarily – you know, intending them. But one of them, for instance, so there's there's two towns that claim fame – uh, as being the inspiration for Bedford Falls. And we have connections to both of them. So I'll, I'll go first and then you can go mm-hmm. second. So for instance, Bedford Falls, one of the towns that claims to be the inspiration is a town called Seneca Falls, New York. And it just so happens that, and that town, they, they have a annual It's a Wonderful Life festival in December and they've got an It's a Wonderful Life museum there. And it's a town along a river, just like that. So, but coincidentally, the company I work for has an office in Seneca Falls, New York, and I had to travel there on business a few years ago. 
and I traveled there in January, and it snowed the whole time I was there. And snowed and snowed and snowed. And snowed. And snowed. <laughs> so I was uh, I was in Seneca Falls, New York, in the winter with lots of snow. I sent Ruth pictures from the hotel uh, window, looking out at the street that parallels the river. It was really neat. I wish I could have been there in December when they had the festival, but I wasn't. And I wish I'd had time away from work so that I could have gone to the museum. But I, I made the most of it while I was there, at least. So that's Seneca Falls. And Ruth's got the story about the other one. And then Califon. New Jersey. Yes, New Jersey um, is connected to the author of that original short story that is the inspiration for the movie that they bought the rights to to make this film. Is In an interview, he said he had Califon in mind when he wrote it. And there's a particular old iron bridge built in the 1800s that's there on Main Street that crosses the river. And when he did his own little like miniature self-publication of his story, he included a sketch of that bridge on the story that he shared with family and friends. And I read in some trivia um, on production notes that the set designers based the bridge on that uh, same one from the town in Califon. And the reason, it's a small little town somewhere in New Jersey. Darren and I were there many years ago for my brother's wedding. So his wife grew up in that little town with all the beautiful Victorian houses. And we learned just, you know, five or so miles away is a real town named Pottersville. <laughs> so I wonder how they feel about <laughs> being represented in the film. <laughs> I'm sure that's not, not ideal for them. <laughs> it's still kind of cool, though. Yeah, it's really interesting to us that, you know, just, you know, over time we ended up with connections to both of those towns that claim fame. And I forgot to mention Seneca Falls claims fame because Frank Capra was in their town during the winter the year before he made the movie. So mm -hmm. that's the reason they claim uh, to be the inspiration. But the the other the third sort of connection we have to this is to. Actress Carolyn Grimes, who plays Zuzu, the youngest daughter of uh, the Baileys, and we were lucky to see her. We go often to Nostalgicon up in Maryland, which is a wonderful convention that celebrates classic film and TV and radio, and she was a guest at Nostalgicon a few years ago, so we got to see her and hear her talk. And her panel was fascinating, so just love to hear what her memories were as a kid of making the film and she spoke so highly of Jimmy Stewart. She said her memories of him is that he was so kind to her and he would try to read books to her every day that she was on the set and that he really encouraged her to play and have fun because she was a kid. He wanted her to have, you know, a kid experience even though they were on that working set. So that was really great to hear. And you know, she was a child actress, and some years later, she, you know, grew up, moved out of L.A., moved somewhere to the Midwest and started a different life, you know, married, had kids of her own. And she was surprised that Jimmy Stewart had his secretary track her down and find, you know, what she was up to so that they could connect and talk and share some memories together so hmm. he could catch up with her and see how her life was going. Oh, yeah, really he's cool. it's, it's nice yeah. when you hear you know, actors and actresses and just famous people in general who you you hope are good people in real life. And, and when when you find out that they are, that's just such a good feeling. Uh, you're absolutely right, because that was so touching to us. And we could tell how much it touched her that he, you know, hunted her 
you know, you know, looked for her and found her and that they had that reconnection. And then not only, you know, did they end up having conversations, he sort of ended up connecting her to these sorts of celebrations uh, of, of the movie. So like she's been to the It's a Wonderful Life Festival in Seneca Falls. I think she like cut the ribbon to open the uh, the museum and stuff there. So she's gotten to do a lot of stuff related to the movie because of, of him. Uh, hunting for her later on. Uh, and then one thing that Ruth uh, forgot to mention is her name, Zuzu. Oh, yeah, that was fun. So uh, her name is actually, she's named after Zuzu Ginger Snaps, which were very popular at the time. So it was sort of like product tie-in. And uh, at one point in time during the movie, he calls it um, his little ginger snap. His little ginger That's snap. It. That's why. <laughs> and I didn't know, I didn't know until now, I didn't know why. I just thought she, that was just his pet name for her. When when we saw her, uh, she has a photo of herself as a young kid with a box of Zuzu ginger snaps. That she still has that photo. Now she she was six years old when they made this, and she is currently eighty one years old. Uh, mm-hmm. It's been about what five six years ago we saw her, or mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah. Now yeah. one of, one of my favorite things I just got such a big kick out of was when on Saturday Night Live. Uh, when William Shatner hosted, and they had, uh, he wasn't actually in the skit, but they had the lost ending to It's a Wonderful Life. Did you ever see that? <laughs> no. <laughs> and, uh, what's his name? John Lovitz plays Mr. Potter. Oh. And Dana Carvey plays George Bailey. I can see wow. that. Uh, and, and there, you know, the, 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 it, it, it picks up at the scene when everybody's coming in with the money. And then Uncle Billy, uh, who was, I think Phil Hartman did him, comes running in and says, I remember where I had the money. Mr. Potter took it. And (laughs) all the people who were gathered there singing uh, Auld Lang Syne go out as an angry mob. (laughs) And they go and they beat up Mr. Potter. Wow. And and I'm not doing it justice because it was really funny. And Dana Carvey's Jimmy Stewart impression is just hilarious. Oh, I'm sure that would have had me rolling and the floor laughing. Wow. I have to look for that online. At some point he says, uh, you made one mistake, Potter. You you double crossed me and you left me alive. Uh, I'm surprised I wouldn't have seen that with yeah, William Shatner being yeah. a guest, and we're we're both big fans of John Lovitz, we'll so we'll that. have to look for that. <laughs> so, well, I, I would, I, I don't know if it's on YouTube, but it probably is. So I would mm-hmm. recommend yeah. you take a look for it there. We will. All right, so we've waxed poetic about this movie for probably longer than most of our episodes go. So at this point, I'm going to say, what do you think? Is it yours? <laughs> I will dive in and say absolutely yes. It is Jaws for me. I love it. There's comedy. There's drama. I get tears in my eyes every time. And I think I notice little things that I've never seen before each time I watch it, even though I've seen it many, many times. Yeah. Highly recommend it. It's it's Jaws for me, too. This movie is just wonderful. It's a movie I can watch over and over you know, anytime it, it's on, I'm willing to sit down and just watch it. I've been a lifelong fan of Jimmy Stewart and you know, uh, my uh, my favorite movies of him, this is one of them. So it, it's a fabulous film. Not only would I say it's Jaws, I'm not going to overstate it, but I would say it's probably in my top 20 of all time. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm not surprised at all. I think I could probably say the same. Excellent film. 
if you haven't seen it, you should see it. And if you've seen it before, you should see it again. Yes. <laughs> so thank you guys for coming on with me. I, I want to wish you the merriest of Christmases. Uh, and I just want you to plug your shows and your network for everybody before we walk away. Well, Merry Christmas to you too, Paul. Thank you. Hope you yeah. enjoy the holidays. It's uh, It means a lot to us to get to chat with you about a movie like this because we love chatting with you about classic movies and, and these sorts of films, so it's terrific. And thank you for inviting us on, and thank you for letting us plug our shows. So, you know, please come and check out Rad Adventures Network. You can find it at radadventuresnetwork.com. You can find it on pretty much any podcatcher and uh, – we do shows like Trekker Talk, where we talk about uh, Ron Randall's sci-fi series Trekker, Warlord Worlds, where we talk about all of Mike Grell's work, Xenozoic Xenophiles, where we talk about Cadillacs and Dinosaurs, Xenozoic Tales by Mark Schultz. And then we have lots of little one-off episodes of just everything from spy shows to fantasy shows to mysteries. So come and give us a listen. We're even on YouTube. And just, just uh, to comment, to add a comment to all of that is, uh, while you haven't introduced me to Mike Grell yet. Uh, you did introduce me to Ron Randall. Uh, <laughs> and I want to say that not only is his work superlative, but he's like one of the nicest guys. Uh, and, you know, he was on here for one episode and he and I have been talking about trying to find time to get him on again. And I look forward to doing that when I can. Awesome. Awesome. Fun. Awesome. Thank and, you. and we just have to look for an opportunity to introduce you to Mike, Mike Grell. Grell. <laughs> <laughs> that would be, that would be a thrill. To be honest, I think his work is... He'll enjoy coming on and talking about a James Bond movie. <laughs> of course, we covered me, if, all those. If he, if he expresses any interest at all, send them my way. <laughs> Very good. All right. Thanks again, guys. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Merry Christmas to everyone, and we'll see you in two weeks. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight marks an historic, not to say unique, moment in the history of both television and cinema. After a search of nearly 40 years, the fabled lost ending to Frank Capra's 1947 film... It's a Wonderful Life has been found. Tonight, for the first time anywhere, Saturday Night Live is proud to present this priceless footage, the fully realized vision of an authentic American genius. So without further ado, here is the lost ending of It's a Wonderful Life. George Bailey needs help. We're here to help him. Oh, well, Mary, Mary, I never realized I had so many friends. And, and a, a man who, who has a friend is a rich man. That's what Clarence said. My golly, he was right. We wouldn't have a roof over our head if it wasn't for you, George. Well, thanks, Dave. Thank you. Pardon me. Pardon me. Pardon me. Oh, Harry. Hello, George. How are Welcome you? home, Harry. Merry Christmas, George. Now, wait a minute, everybody. I've got a telegram here I want to read from London. Dear George, stop. Mr. Gower cables, you need cash. Stop. My office instructed to advance you up to $8,000. Oh, stop. Oh Yeehaw, and Merry Christmas, Sam Wainwright! Oh,
I just called Clarence at the bank. He told me that old man Potter deposited exactly $8,000 right after I left. It was him! Well, what are we waiting for? Let's go get it. Trouble already. You made one mistake, Mr. Potter. You double-crossed me and you left me alive. Now, wait just a second. I'll give you the money back. I don't want the money. I want a piece of you, Potter. Well, it doesn't, Mr. Potter. And the whole bad configuration of things, you're nothing but a scurvy little spider. I can explain that. Harry, Mary, hold him for you. Yeah, it's it. I'm